If you would please take a Bible in hand and turn to the New Testament epistle written by the Apostle Paul, the book of Romans. And we are considering Romans chapter 6 here for the rest of July. We began last week. If you're using a Bible from the Purack, you can find today's passage on page 943. We're considering new life in Christ here from Romans chapter 6 this summer. The good news of this chapter is that Jesus does not offer a partial rescue from sin. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for sin. And part of what we saw last week is that by his death and resurrection, he broke the power of sin. Jesus saves from the penalty and the power of sin. And in this chapter, Paul drives home the point that Jesus has already accomplished all that is necessary for us to live new lives united to him. He is the perfect Savior who accomplished and provides a complete salvation for anyone who would trust in him. This chapter not only helps us see that Jesus has already accomplished all that is needed for the Christian life, but it also instructs us how to live as those freed from the power of sin. Here and many other places, In the Apostle Paul's letters, we can observe a relationship between indicatives and imperatives. An indicative is a statement of fact. An imperative is a prohibition or a command. It's a don't do this, do this. So in the New Testament, an indicative is what God has done for us or what God has promised to do for us. And then the imperative is what we must do in obedience. Indicatives are to be believed. Imperatives are to be followed. In Romans 6, the imperatives for personal holiness are rooted in and spring forth from the indicatives of the gospel. Now, we considered some of this last week, but I want to remind you because today's passage is three imperatives and an indicative. So take note when we read God's word, take note of what we must do because of what God has done and what he will do for us before we read God's word. Let us ask for his help in prayer. Please pray with me again. Heavenly Father, we do pray as we just sang, speak, O Lord. And where else can we hear your voice but in your word, in your son? So I ask that as we open our Bibles and we read them, that you would bring illumination to our minds. Give us understanding into things that on our own we would not understand, but by your spirit may we see your goodness, and your glory. May we be built up, nourished in the faith, receiving your word from your mouth. We ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Hear the word of God from Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Stuart Elliott helpfully summarizes the first 14 verses of Romans 6 with the following illustration. Now kids, here this morning, listen up. I think this story will help you understand what the Apostle Paul wants to teach you here in the first half of Romans chapter 6, what the Apostle Paul wants you to learn about becoming more and more like Jesus. And so the story goes like this. There once was a poor slave who was kept as a prisoner in the castle of his tyrannical master. The slave had to do all that his cruel master commanded and became more and more miserable because the tyrant exploited him and made his life one of unceasing labor and toil. Sometimes he tried to escape by leaning on a ladder with ten rungs against the outside wall. But he could never get very far up the ladder before his master appeared and snatched him off a couple rungs and beat him almost to death. There seemed to be no way of getting away from this bondage and its suffering. So it happened that nearby there lived a great king who out of love for the poor prisoner planned a marvelous way to release him. We need not go into the details except to say that the king killed the imprisoned slave by crucifixion. The tyrant came looking for his slave, but found him dead. This meant to his annoyance that he could make no more demands on him. None of the rights which he had previously exercised over the slave could operate anymore. The master-slave relationship that had existed for so long was now at a permanent end. When the slave's body was buried, the great king came along and raised him from the dead and took him to his own house. And the slave was overcome with thankfulness for the fact that he had been delivered from his condition in such a remarkable way and was overjoyed that he now found himself in the home of one so wise, gracious, and powerful His heart was fulfilled with sincere love and affection for his deliverer. And he determined that he would now serve him. The old relationship had been ended by death, yet he was alive. He recognized that having been given such newness of life, there was only one whom he could now serve. He was dead to his old master and alive to his new one. He was dead to sin alive to God. Pause the story. This is Romans 6, 11. 
So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Christian, you must no longer think of yourself under the reign of sin, the tyrannical and cruel master. But now you belong to Jesus, the great, loving, wise, gracious, and powerful king. So far, the story covers verses 1 through 11. But there's more to the story. So let's unpause and just pick it up here as it sets the stage for our passage this morning. Well, the slave who died and rose again is now spending his days serving the king who saved him from the old master's power. One day, while doing an errand, he meets his old master. The old master tries to instill terror into him and give him commands, just like he used to do. He even threatens to beat him if he disobeys. What is the slave to do? That brings us to verses 12 through 14. Christian, what are you to do when sin, the old master, shows up and demands your obedience? How are you to deal with the old master? Let's pay attention to the instructions and the encouragements Paul gives us when we find ourselves in such a situation, because we certainly do find ourselves in this very predicament over and over again. So let's consider the instructions and encouragements with the following outline. In verses 12 through the first half of verse 13, Paul instructs you that you must intentionally reject sin's reign. Then, in the second half of verse 13, Paul instructs you that you must purposefully devote yourself to God's reign. And then in verse 14, Paul wants you to take courage from the promise that grace overcomes the reign of sin. You must intentionally reject sin's reign you must purposely devote yourself to God's reign. And you take courage from the promise that grace overcomes the reign of sin. Well, first, intentionally rejecting sin's reign in verses 12 through the first half of 13. Let's look at it. Look down in your Bibles again, please. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Here in the course of Romans 6, we are moving from thought to action. Verse 11, remember, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. The first instruction was in the realm of our thoughts, the Christian mind. Now we're moving towards mandates. In this section, we have two prohibitions. The first one, do not let sin reign. The second one, do not present your members to sin. Now, what is the key to obeying these prohibitions? Well, the key is there early in verse 12. It's therefore. Therefore references what was said previously and up to this point. Outside of Christ, it is impossible to keep sin from reigning over your life. Outside of Christ, you were always presenting your members for sin. But now, 
if you've been united to Christ, his death is your death to sin, and his resurrection life gives you power to live in a new way. Apart from being united to Christ, these prohibitions are impossible to truly follow. It's like telling a person who doesn't know how to swim and is drowning, stop drowning, swim to the shore. If they could swim and make it to the shore, they would do it. They would not be drowning. Someone who is under the dominion of sin cannot oppose the reign of sin over them. But if you've been delivered from the dominion of sin, you can reject sin's reign when the old master shows up and demands that you renew your allegiance to him. The theologian John Murray put it like this, Christians must put into effect the privileges and rights of being freed from sin. So let's consider the first prohibition. Do not let sin reign. Here it is in the present tense. Let not sin reign. Put into action what is true of you now, now that you are in Christ. Now this rejecting of sin requires effort. Why? Because there it says in verse 13, we remain in the mortal body. What is meant by mortal body? It is the whole person that is still in contact with this fallen world. Until you receive a glorified body, sin will seek to reign over you. The believer is severed from sin's power, but we still live and participate in a fallen world with bodies that are weak, with bodies that can suffer, with bodies that can still participate in sin. So what does sin reign look like? Well, in the second part of verse 12, it says that sin wants you to obey its passions. Passions here means desires in conflict with the will of God. It's sinful passions. It's sinful desires. Sinful lusts. Sinful cravings. Sin's reign wants to lead you to slavery to sinful passions. Paul is showing us that a spiritual battle remains. And that the battle for the individual Christian is won or lost daily in the decisions that we make while we are in this body. The believer, you belong to another age, but you are sojourning through this age still. And this age remains under the reign of sin. And therefore, we must intentionally reject the reign of sin now. The good news is that if you are in Christ, every sin that tempts your desires, you may now say no. You don't have to drown. You can swim to the shore. The second prohibition, do not present your members to sin. Now, in making his point, Paul is getting more and more specific. In verse 11, he speaks of you. And then in verse 12, he speaks of the body. And in verse 13 here, he speaks of members. He's going from a broader general concept to a more specific practice. He's in a sense, becoming more practical, more pragmatic in how we are to do this. So 
So what does he mean by members? Well, in several places, Paul uses the concept of members in his writing. You may think of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he tells us that the church is the body of Christ and the members are the different parts of the body. Some are a hand, some are a foot, some are an eye, some are a mouth. And similarly here, members includes our body parts, but it's more a catch-all for our natural capacity. It's what we can do in the body. He wants us to think about what we are able to do with our bodies while we are able to have emotions, exercise our will. We have physical abilities. And all of this was previously under the reign of sin. And so previously, our members, it says, were instruments for unrighteousness. Now, different translations have a different uh, word for instrument there. The word translated instrument can also be translated as weapon. And there is so in several other places in the ESV translation. So what is the picture Paul is painting? Sin as personified as a military general. And his weapons are the members of those under his command. Paul wants us to recognize that everything we do in our bodies until the resurrection is in the midst of conflict. And that sin, like a military general commanding an army, is seeking to inflict harm to others and wage war against God through our members. So Paul is telling us to avoid using our abilities in the service of sin. Our members, our natural capacities, our weapons that we are not to offer into the service of sin's army. Now, both of these prohibitions, we could say, are imperatives of mortification. What is mortification? Well, it's spiritually killing sin. How do we kill sin's desires? Well, we must avoid the old master, our old general. Anything that puts you in the path of the old master must be rejected and abandoned. Now, this could mean different things for different people. Some may have certain Christian liberties in which there are forms of arts and entertainment or maybe types of food and drink that they can, with a sincere heart, partake of for the glory of God and it doesn't drag them into temptation and then sin. But others... Because of who you used to be in Adam, there are certain forms of maybe literature, music, entertainment, certain places that you used to go, that for you to go there now means that you're putting yourself in the way of an encounter and a confrontation with your old master. And it is not weakness to flee from those situations. It is strength. It is believing who you are in Christ and running back to him and away from the one who seeks to use your members for unrighteousness. Again, Stuart Elliott 
very helpfully puts it, we avoid him like the plague, for plague he is. And what happens? When we avoid those situations, we are starving those desires. The more we starve them, eventually we see that they have less of an attraction to us. The mortification of sin is starving sinful desires to death. It's vital to holiness, but it's only one side of pursuing holiness. You must say no to sin's reign. You must also say yes to God's reign. So you must purposely devote yourself to God's reign. That's what we see in the second half of verse 13. Look back in your Bibles with me again. Let's read it. But present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Renouncing your service to sin must immediately be followed with enlisting yourself in the service of your new master. The negative prohibitions of don't do this are followed with the positive commands of do this. You are to constantly present yourself to God just like you used to constantly present yourself to sin. It is the stop doing one thing and instead fill your hands, your mind, your mouth, and your thoughts with other things. There's a good example of this in uh, one of Paul's other letters in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. And it works as a good illustration for us. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. There you see it. The don't do this, but do this instead. It's not a matter for the thief to stop stealing. Eventually, he's going to encounter situations in which stealing will seem like, well, this is the way to go. But if he begins to become a laborer and works hard, then he doesn't put himself in the way of his former temptation. And what does it say there? Then he'll have even more to share with others to transform life and heart. Again, apart from being united to Christ, this command is impossible. But how is it possible to do this? Well, he tells us right here in the passage. It shows us how we're able to devote ourselves to God's reign. There, Paul reminds us that we've been brought from death to life. The Christian exists in a new state. It is because of regeneration that we can now keep God's commands. Now, what do we mean by regeneration? It means you may have heard the Christian language before being born again. And this is what Paul is referencing here. We were spiritually dead, incapable of doing any spiritual good, and resurrection power has made us spiritually alive. The bodily resurrection still awaits the believer, but the powers of the age to come, the powers that raised Christ from the dead, has raised us to new life. And so if you've been born again, 
you can devote your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And if you've been born again, that means you can devote yourself to your Savior. Now, because of the new birth, your natural capacities, what is done in your body, can now be weapons for righteousness. There you see the contrast. Before, you presented yourself and your members as instruments for unrighteousness, but now, righteousness. Now, this is the first time that Paul has referenced righteousness since the end of Romans chapter 5. It's the first time it appears in Romans chapter 6. But here, he's using righteousness differently than he did previously. Previously in the book of Romans, the discussion around righteousness revolved around forensic righteousness, the courtroom of heaven. Who is guilty and who is not guilty? Who is pardoned? Who can go free? Who is condemned? That was the discussion that surrounded righteousness. But here, the righteousness is different. Paul is saying, you can live in a righteous way. It's speaking of ethical righteousness, if you would. It's righteousness in the context of our character now. Paul is highlighting the hope of real moral reformation that is possible because of regeneration. Quite simply, once again, believer, Jesus provides for you everything you need to obey. He gives you the forensic righteousness, the legal righteousness, and he gives you and equips you what you need to live in moral righteousness. These two things are different. The only way to receive the righteousness we need before the courtroom of heaven is through faith in Jesus. And no matter how much we progress in holiness, our moral righteousness is never enough to clear us before the judgment seat of God. But having received Christ's righteousness and having been born again and filled with the Spirit, we are able to grow in obedience to the righteousness of life that God demands. Lastly, in verse 14, you can take courage from the promise that grace overcomes the reign of sin. Look back in your Bible to verse 14 again. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. After telling us what not to do and what to do, Paul returns here to the source of Christian living. And it's the grace of God. He promises that grace can provide the power to resist and the power to obey. All that is prohibited and commanded in verses 12 and verse 13 is based upon the assurance here that grace wins. Grace wins. He uses the future tense here. We'll have no dominion over you. That's part of the promise. Why is it in the future tense? 
It's to express the certainty of the victory that Christ has accomplished. It is to assure the believer that grace will win over sin in your life. And that this promise is true for every believer and it is true right now. I need this. You need this. Why? Putting a stop to the reign of sin quite often feels impossible, doesn't it? Do you feel like in a cycle of going back to the same sins over and over? Oftentimes we feel marked by failure. And that as we have tried to address habitual sins, instead of conquering sin, we feel conquered. And some of us, maybe you've just come to accept that when it comes to fighting the reign of sin, I will fail, I must fail. Paul is speaking exactly to that feeling. He says that you're no longer under the dominion of failure under the reign of grace. See, you're no longer under the law, the dominion of the law through Adam. You're no longer in Adam. You're in Christ. Now God's law, here as this reference, we have to remind you, it's righteous. It is good. But it can only do so much. Here, if we would have been working through the book of Romans, we would see that in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, that the law gives us knowledge of sin. In Romans chapter 4, verse 15, the law shows us the wrath that our sins deserve. In Romans 5, 13, and 14, we see that the law multiplies transgressions. And in verse 20 of chapter 5, it increases the severity of sin. This is what law does. In summary, well, there's more that we can say, but here's a good summary of what the law does. It commands and demands. It can pronounce blessing and approval upon conformity to its demands, but it must be perfect conformity. And therefore, it pronounces condemnation for every infraction of the law's demands. So the law exposes and convicts of sin, but also we see in the book of Romans, and you see this if you were to keep reading through Romans 7, it also it excites and incites more sin. In Romans 3, we see that the law does point away from itself and our need for another. In summary, to be clear, the law can do a lot of things, but there's one thing it can never do can never save. It cannot justify those who violate it. It cannot relieve the bondage of sin. We need to be reminded and we need to be sure that the law does not dethrone sin in our lives, but grace dethrones sin. The law of God is holy it shows you how to serve God, but it does not empower you to do so. Grace, and only grace, gives you the power that you need. 
It's helpful to consider that there are two extreme views when it comes to sanctification. That means the Christian's growth in holiness and Christlikeness. And these two extreme views are refuted by what we have looked at here this morning. There's one view that says sanctification is purely mental. It's an overemphasis on the indicative. It is something that God does to us apart from any effort. Then the other extreme is that sanctification is purely behavioral. It's an exercise that we give ourselves to independent of grace. But that is not what Paul is laying out for us. That there is a dynamic and a sequence to Christian living. The dynamic of sanctification is that the indicative bears the imperative. And what God commands us to do is never separated what he has already done for us And he equips us for everything he commands us to do. But to be clear, there is a sequence to the holy life. If you and I are to progress in holiness, we need to recognize that there is an order to this. It is a gospel order. To get the order wrong is to get the gospel wrong. It is an irreversible order. What is the order? What Christ has done for us is the basis of our obedience. We must pursue obedience under grace. But be careful how we think about this. As we pursue obedience under grace, as we are discipling others, as we are raising little disciples in the home, as we are helping new believers get their footing in the Christian life, as we seek to grow in our holiness, we must be careful to pursue obedience under grace, but understanding the fullness and power of grace. Quite often we think of grace as just covering our failures and sins. And so we... Obey imperfectly, but there is grace to cover where we come up short. But do you see that the apostle is telling us that is true of grace, but there is more that is true of grace. There's a glorious encouragement that grace doesn't just cover our disobedience, but it empowers us to do what we couldn't do before. Therefore, the Christian life from start to finish is all of grace. By grace, we've been freed from our old master, and by grace, we live free from our old master. Amen. Let us ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Jesus, what a glorious redemption you have accomplished and that you have bestowed upon such an unworthy people like us. You have brought us from the kingdom of darkness to your very own kingdom. 
and that we are no longer under the reign of sin, but we joyfully get to serve you. So we ask that we would increasingly delight in what you delight in, that we would increasingly, by your grace working in us, love the things you love and hate the things you hate, and that we might more and more each and every day resemble you, our Savior. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.